Blog Talk Radio. On this episode of Revolution with High C, a thought-provoking roundtable discussion on how we can shine as brightly as the solstice sun, an interview with revolutionary guest Karen Krebster exploring the topic of ancestor reverence and such questions as how we connect with and honor the dead, how we can prepare for or respond to a visitation from the other side, how we might deal with unwanted or unsavory ancestors in order to heal or break a genetic or spiritual cycle of trauma, and what we can do if we're adopted and want to honor our ancestors, plus our monthly astrology outlook for all of the zodiac signs. Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludner. So welcome everyone to the show today. Thank you for listening. And I'm joined by my co-hosts this morning, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Carousella. Good morning. And Deb Carousella. Good morning, everybody. And our topic for the roundtable today is, is kind of jumping off the idea, this is June, this is the month of summer solstice when the sun is at its peak. So there's this idea of wanting to look at you know, how are we shining in the world? How are what is our brilliance and how are we allowing that to both shine out to the world and be reflected back to us? And where and how are there things that may be getting in the way of us being able to shine brightest and reflect back to the world what we would like for them to see in us, as well as for us to then have reflected back what it is that we would like to see and get from the world around us. What are your suggestions for windexing your inner mirror? You know, how do we make a clear mirror within ourselves to see rather than seeing through a, a dirty surface or only seeing what other mirrors are reflecting back to us and then basing our self-image, etc., on that reflection? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, what I, would, I find is a useful exercise is to look at a photo of yourself. And sometimes people look at photos and they pick the photo apart. And I think that's really a reflection of what you value and how you perceive yourself. My photo that I have on Facebook and the one that I have at the end of my emails, I look at it and it makes me really happy and joyful. As I look at it, I, I feel what I was feeling at the time the photo was taken. You know, I would hope that that's passed along to other people. I'm I'm having myself reflected back to me in a very happy, joyful, and positive way. And it doesn't really, in that moment when I'm looking at my photo, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks or anybody says. It's enough. So how did did you get to the point where you don't look at a picture and pick it apart versus being able to see a picture of yourself that way? As I gained more and more inner peace. So how did you go about gaining that inner peace? Over the years, my practice trying to be in integrity and walk my walk and step back and exposing myself to higher beings, being open and maturing, all all different reasons, different ways. And this is for anyone. How can we start to recognize when we are operating from what other people and things reflect back to us 
instead of operating from our own reflection of who we are and who and what our truth is versus some external version of the truth or who we should be or that kind of thing. Hmm. Like, how can we recognize if we are having body image issues because we're buying into what external sources are telling us we should look like versus being able to see how we truly feel or see ourselves and our body image, for example. Well, it's pretty rich terrain. Several things come to mind, but maybe the easiest one to communicate is when we start to compare with with the purpose of assessing something is that, that that something is better than something else or something that is higher or anything that isn't oh that's interesting anything that contains judgment is an indication that you're that you're basing your decisions or your conclusions on that which is outside of yourself it would seem to me that if you are actually reflecting from your inner core you are more likely to experience yourself as a unique being with unique gifts and that that makes you special. It can bring you joy as compared to if you're experiencing yourself as less than something else or someone else, if you're experiencing yourself as inadequate in some way, and that doesn't mean that you, that you're, that, you know, every time you experience struggle, that this would be the case. But when you are saying I should be, or I want to be like that person, well, I think there's a difference between aspiration versus comparison. Yeah. And what, okay. you're, what, what you're saying there, right at the end of what you were just saying, is more aspiring to perhaps better myself or strive for something or a quality that I see in someone else or see someone else exemplifying. But that's different than comparing myself and looking at someone and saying, I'm inferior or there's something wrong or bad about me because I don't look like that or act like that or something like that. So I think that there's a difference in aspiration versus comparison. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. I think there is a difference between aspiration and comparison. And I think aspiration is okay as long as you don't make it a, 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 a situation where you are denigrating yourself for not measuring up and that's that's when it becomes comparison. And also not just mimicry or copycatting versus saying, I admire that quality, I would aspire to be like that, but how do I take that and now filter it through myself to express it in my own way or to be that based on my own truth or who I am rather than simply trying to be somebody else? You were asking before, I see the path to getting to where you can look at yourself and have a joyful experience. When you start to learn how to laugh at yourself and not take yourself seriously, that opens the door to those types of feelings. And it also invites in compassion for yourself. And for me, I like to expand it a little further in the area of laughing. I exist in this lifetime, an aspect of me exists, and I'm sure other aspects of me existed in other lifetimes. So if you stretch out the continuum, then things become less serious. And you realize, as you were saying in one of your points from last week, you know, is it, is it, it a matter of life or death? Right. So the ma- matter of life or death for me is the continuum of there are many lifetimes. 
And then you start to laugh at yourself. And then you start to have compassion for yourself. And your inner voice gets louder. And you recognize it. And you start to like it. You become a friend of it. Then your eyes. Your eyes start to see things differently. They are the eyes of love for yourself, compassion for yourself, laughing at yourself. It's not a matter of life or death for yourself. Multiple lifetime self. And I think those are some of the things that help to clean and make clear our inner mirror so that then we start to reflect those things outward and back to the world. And we can become more of a reflection of love and compassion and those kind of things towards others to help them see that from somebody else as well as perhaps to start seeing that in themselves as well rather than always looking outside of us for that validation or quality or that kind of thing. But there is a role for validation to come from the outside. So this is this is an interesting thing. But if we have a, a, a dirty inner mirror, then what we're reflecting back can become murky or distorted. Oh, yeah, that's true. And so the clearer our inner mirror is, the clearer we are able to see, even if something outside of us is giving us validation, the clearer we're able to see that it is a truth or it is right or it is not. Mm, because point. because we, can, we can get external validation from the external world that says, oh, you look beautiful because you have on all of this makeup and therefore it's put on so perfectly and therefore that's what makes you look so good. Yeah, you're right. External validation can be, can be a distortion too. Uh, right. Yeah, but yeah. but our inner mirror would say, well, it's nice to hear that they're appreciating the makeup that I put on today. However, I know that that's not what's making me beautiful. Another thing came to me, see, is um, in terms of having a clean internal mirror reflecting others, we're taught in this society to look for flaws. So everybody is very astute in that area, whether we realize it or not. And many of the messages that we receive are, you are less than, or how to improve. And even if we don't absorb them consciously, sometimes we absorb them subconsciously. And when we have an awareness that that's what's in our environment, we can take steps to remove that by being more present with what we expose ourselves to. I feel is a little bit of Windex. Well, right. And I think that 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 it's very important what you just said is to what we expose ourselves to because it's like the difference between setting your mirror outside so that it just gets dirty from whatever elements come at it and stick to it versus perhaps keeping it covered and only uncovering it when there is a clear sunny day so that the, that what it's getting exposed to is the <laughs> brightest, most positive thing is something that is not going to necessarily dirty it or dirty it very much. Maybe a little dust will get on there on a clear sunny day, but it's not the same as if it's sitting out in a rainstorm and sitting out in a snowstorm and just being battered by the elements. So I think that making that conscious choice as to what we expose ourselves to and then how we step away from that when it's not necessarily the best weather for us to be ex or the best elements for us to be exposing ourselves to is a way of keeping the mirror cleaner without having to do so much work all the time just to clean it off. So what do you think is the what do you think is the biggest source of 
distortion or the the most challenging element that causes our internal mirrors to dirty that we are exposed to on a regular basis? Uh, I think it's your parents. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it's our parents. You know, like like from the time we're little, from the time we're just brought into the world, those early experiences. In fact, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz in the Four Agreements starts his book with a chapter on the smoky mirror, how the mirror is distorted and and dirtied by all these, you know, the experiences that you have as a child that train the ego to perceive the world in a certain way when the world is not like that at all. But we believe it's true because it's our, our foundational formational experiences. And I think that would be like the that that layer of grime that's on the very surface yeah that's underneath a lot of other stuff that is built up on top of it because you can you know you can dust a piece of furniture but it may still look dirty and then you have to get in and really get to the the grime and that that underneath layer that has gotten very settled in yeah and that's that's where ultimately you have to work through the the surfacey stuff, but then you have to be willing to get down and do the harder scrubbing in order to deal with the things that have really settled in and maybe cause you to act or react or see yourself in certain ways that comes from the earliest imprintings. Yeah. I think it could also be a disconnect from source or nature. Because when you're out in nature, Nature is beautiful. It's it's so abundant and luscious and beautiful. You know that deep inside. And if you perceive yourself as a part of nature, then by association, what will start to creep in is that you're beautiful. And then your inner mirror will start to reflect that. And that becomes very strong. So something that Mildred had said gave me a, an idea of something that people could try. And I would encourage you, if you have a suggestion for something people can try, to not only clean off their inner mirror, but to start becoming more conscious of what they're allowing externally to reflect back to them that they're basing their own image or truth on, and then looking at what they're reflecting out to the world. You know, oftentimes we hear about doing like a gratitude exercise um, or a gratitude practice. So like it, at the end of each day, for example, you might write down a couple of things that you're grateful for from that day and keep them in a jar or something so you can see that jar of gratitude filling up over the course of a, well, for me, it'd be over the course of a moon cycle or that kind of thing. But what's, what we could also try doing is perhaps an empowerment practice, which is like Mildred was saying, that we tend to be very conditioned to a world or a habit of looking for flaws and criticisms. And, and even and even in the guise of things that are supposed to be helpful, you know, like in a job situation, you go in for a review, but really what they're doing is looking for what can you do better? How can you improve? And there often is a much less emphasis or there is no emphasis placed on what has been done well or right versus, okay, over the next six months, what are you going to do better? You know, or how can we improve this? And so perhaps at the end of each day, if we did an empowerment practice, we could 
write down a couple of things that says, I did this well today. I applaud myself for this today. Not looking at what I did that I can do better tomorrow, but looking at what did I do my best at today or what did I succeed at today. And just like with a gratitude practice, if you do that on a regular basis, it changes your perspective. So if we start thinking in a way that is about empowering ourselves or pointing out those things that are good or that we did well at the end of each day, that will start to shift our way of thinking so that we don't buy into that or, or operate from what we were conditioned to do, which is look for the flaw, look for the thing that needs to be improved, versus we start to see what is good, what is right, what is working well, what is in alignment with my truth, whatever, and we start becoming a reflection of that way of thinking rather than simply reflecting back the conditioned way that we were brought up in of, of looking for flaws or pointing out things that need to be judged. And there's an interesting contrast there, too. And one is one is quite yin and the other is, is yang. Um, and it brings to mind a quote from Spinoza. He said, uh, to be all one is capable of being and to become one all, all one is capable of becoming is the only end of life. And what I am in this moment, I should be fully and, and in order to be it fully, I have to see it fully. I have to appreciate it fully. And that really does put you in the present moment to say, who am I in this moment? Not who am I, who do I want to be? Not who am I trying to become, but who am I in this moment? And looking at that person that I am, looking at that being, what part of that being Am I, sh am I sharing? What part of that being am I not sharing? You have to be it in order to really see it. I have a little exercise. If you, everybody has baby pictures, or most people have baby pictures. So if you pull out your pictures from when you were born and all through the years, to look at the point when you started to feel less than whole or feel inadequate or unworthy, as reflected back to you chronologically by photos. And, per, and perhaps you could approach the picture differently and look at it from a different perspective and say, what do I see in that person that I now know was present or what potential or what was I doing well that I can look back on and see that I wasn't able to acknowledge or see then? So that you start to look at that person from that time period differently of who you were then and you are able to look at the picture differently and see see a very different perspective or a very different reflection of who that person is compared to how you have become very accustomed to looking at and remembering that person at that time. Because it can be a very transformative experience to build on what High C was saying. You're looking at from the eyes of another aspect of yourself, basically. And sometimes those external eyes of someone else are also important. And so to, you know, another aspect of that exercise, using the pictures like you were talking about, Mildred, perhaps doing that exercise with yourself and somebody else and having them maybe write down their impressions of who they see in that picture and you write down who you see in that picture and then come together and compare that list because 
the qualities or the things they see may be very different and very surprising as to what other people are seeing, but also helps us see what it is that we may be reflecting out into the world and not even realize in a very kind of positive way. So with that, I think we'll bring this roundtable to a close, and I would encourage anyone listening to take advantage of this time of year and really think about with the sun being at its brightest and at its peak, what are you allowing to be reflected back to you in the world around you and what it is what is it that you are reflecting to the world and how do those two feed on each other help each other hurt each other and take advantage of this maximum amount of light that we have during this time of year to look at those things clearly objectively honestly and start to perhaps be willing to work on being a brighter and clearer reflection to yourself and to the world around you. So thank you very much to my co-hosts for joining me today, Mildred and McDonald. Thanks, I see. John Caracella. Thanks, I see. It's fun. And Deb Caracella. Thanks, I see. And stay tuned because we have lots more coming up in the show. Thanks, and we'll be right back. Revolutionary guest this month is seer, diviner, card reader, writer, poet, dramatist, Karen Krebser. Karen has been living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area all her life and engaged in spiritual practices for about as long, if not longer. She has actively studied the Tarot for almost 20 years and has been providing insightful and creative readings publicly for over 10 years. In addition to her Tarot and Cardomancy studies, Karen's activities and explorations in several different spiritual traditions have brought her into a closer relationship with her ancestral origins. She is a pagan and an animist, believing that pretty much everything is alive and we're all in relationship with everything. Karen received a master's degree in English literature from San Jose State University with an additional emphasis in creative writing in addition to her cardomancy readings and blog work via the Muses Darling website, she is also currently working on a graphic novel, several plays that explore the themes of identity, chaos, and vengeance, and other cool and interesting stuff that, as she says, keeps her out of jail. You can find out more about Karen Krebser and her work at her website, 
www.musesdarling.com, which is M-U-S-E-S-D-A-R-L-I-N-G.com. So please join me in welcoming this month's revolutionary guest, Karen Krebser. So thank you, Karen Krebser, for being willing to join us here on the show today. I'm so grateful for you taking out some time and space to to speak with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Heisey. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely delighted. And I wanted to invite you on the show today, uh, one, because in the spiritual tradition that I practice, uh, we actually have our annual ritual to honor the dead, particularly the dead from the past year, but also it can go beyond that in May. And I wanted to have you on because I know that you're uh, a bit of an expert on ancestor reverence and, and working around ways to honor ancestors. So uh, I know there's a lot of ways people will think about that. Perhaps in our society, there is a tendency to think that once a year we go visit grandmother's grave to put some fresh flowers on. Mm -hmm. You know, other cultures, we might, like Japanese culture, they have a shrine in the house that Mm -hmm. is maintained and and you do things throughout the year on a regular basis, give little offerings of food, incense, and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if we might start by hearing how you define um, ancestor reverence and also what your evolution has been in your life that has brought you to what you do and how you do things regarding ancestor reverence today? Sure. Well, first of all, let me say I'm not an expert. I am a student of it. I I have loved practicing actively for the last six years or so. Um, But I think I've always had a sort of... um, reverence for my elders a very and this it's a it's a very strong sense of propriety about taking care of and how one behaves around our elders um and that probably comes from having a rather strict upbringing and the the ancestor reverence i had when i was a child wasn't really called that as such it was more like we go to the graves of our beloved dead maybe once a year or once every few years. We do the flowers. We have masses said. That's a big thing in our family. I come from a Roman Catholic tradition. And so uh, <clears throat> sending a little money to the Jesuits to have them say a mass when someone dies, that's a big deal. But it wasn't until... a about 2010 that I met a teacher who began talking to me about ancestor reverence in particular. And this is the way that I would understand it to be practiced, for example, in the Chinese and Asian, um, Japanese, uh, the different traditions that exist in those countries. And of course, uh, I imagine there are um, large or or significant ancestor practices throughout Asia. And it seemed to me that there was something so alive about the dead, (laughs) if you know what I mean, that, I mean, I've always been fascinated with the idea of what happens next 
what happens to us after we die. But coming from a very Christian background or a Catholic background, um, the answer was always, well, you go to heaven or you go to hell. And I had thought, well, there must be more than that. I mean, do we just kind of all sit around and, and sing or, you know, that doesn't seem very useful in the grand scheme of things. So maybe, you know, there's something more going on. There's something more to this idea of what happens to us after we die. And then uh, as I got older and the more significant elders in my life began to pass away, my grandparents, uh, grand aunties, grand uncles, and even some neighbors around the street and uh, the street I grew up on. And I would see some of them sometimes in my dreams. And I would, uh, the most significant of these actually was my father. He died when I was 18. And so I began to see him in dreams. And actually, this it's a very personal thing. My, my father was not always the best father. He had a terribly violent temper and a, a really negative relationship with alcohol and an addictive relationship. And so I thought, well, when he died, I thought uh, if the Catholic Church is telling me the truth, he's probably at least spending a little time in hell right now. And I'm not okay with that. And I don't think that's very compassionate. And actually, I think it's kind of horrible, actually. And so my own thinking along that line began to develop after my father died. And then he began to show up in dreams in different states of uh, process. I'll call it, whatever he was going through at the time, whatever struggles he was working through. But I think he was showing himself to me to let me know that he wasn't just blinked out of existence, that there was something else there. And then, as I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, in 2010, I began to study with a man who practiced a type of ancestor reverence that comes from Siberia. Uh, the <clears throat> Buryat Mongolian shamanism, um, <clears throat> Tenjurism is what it's called in that land. And it opened my eyes to an entirely new way for me to work with the dead, to actually consider them allies, even though I can't see them, to acknowledge that they're there and not relegate them to a sort of mystical land of either fire or some sort of beautiful cloudy or cloud, you know, floaty sort of not <clears throat> uh, freedom from uh, any kind of pain and suffering, that it, it wasn't that simple, that there was much more going on. And so <clears throat> I joined a group. Uh, that was led by this man, and <clears throat> I beg your pardon, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we met once a month, and uh, we practiced different techniques of kind of, I, it's going to sound funny to say, and very Western to say, but a, a way of organizing 
the ancestors, or rather organizing our way of seeing into our relationships with, and when I say our, I mean the the people in the group. And I, uh, it was a way of organizing and sorting and sifting through how to deal with each of my lineages, my mother's mother, my mother's father, my father's mother, and my father's father. And seeing um, through these studies and practices what the burdens and curses of each lineage are, what um, what the blessings are, what the gifts are, and how just holding space and being present can help not only the beloved dead to heal, but that that work can also radiate forward into the generations beyond me. Like, um, I don't have any children of my own. I will never have any children, but my sister has a son. And so the work I'm doing will help him. Um, and uh, my cousins have children, and it will help them. So that that's kind of an overview of how I got into it and a a very brief uh, discussion of kind of what I did. But I I wanted to tell you the story of why it, or an illustrative story that shows why it means as much to me as it does. Um, I had begun to see a, um, a, an ancestor medium who was also a body worker and I had needed massage and I had needed body work. And she was also an energy healer. And uh, <clears throat> she had a little apartment uh, on Cap Street in San Francisco in the mission, in the heart of the mission. And so I went up and everything was set up so strangely to me. I'd never seen anything like this. And she'd learned all of her techniques from... Um, a Dagora holy man from Burkina Faso. And so there were very few ever there were very few chairs or tables. Everything happened on the floor. And everything was um very embodied, very um it, it wasn't like for example, sometimes in my Western practices uh, things can be kind of from the neck up, if you understand what I mean. Like we we tend to approach things head first, but this was all from the neck down, uh, all heart related, all root chakra related. It was um, very kind of unsettling to my mind, and I kind of had to turn my mind off because it was so different. And anyway, so she gave me she did the body work and gave me the massage. And then sat down, and we were going to do a um, a mediumship session where she went into trance and became possessed by the ancestors, so that she could speak to me through. They could speak to me through her, and so she did that. She went through her her ritual preparations and her process, and then the first thing that she said was, "We're so hungry," and just. 
I, I, to this day, I can still, I mean, it was like four years ago and I can still feel it in my gut, such a primal expression of sorrow and need was, we're so hungry, Karen, can you feed us? Can you feed us? We, we need food. We need drink. We need sustenance, please. And of course, hearing that prayer and knowing that it's coming from my beloved dead, how could I say no? And so I, I started to cry, and <clears throat> when the healer came out of her trance, I asked her, and we talked for a long time about different ways to engage in practices that revered the ancestors, that allowed them to be fed not only physically, well, physically as I'm doing air quotes, not only physically, but also spiritually, And ever since then, I've made it a practice to put aside a bite of everything I eat and a sip of everything I drink and just cover it with one of my hands and say, ancestors, this is for you with my love and blessings. And I can hear and feel them saying, thank you. Oh, this is great. Thank you. You know, just that concept or that um, simple act of putting out food for the people we love, to remember them, to remember to feed them, to remember to give them like a little bit of champagne if we're celebrating something, if there's an engagement, if there's a new job, if, you know, whatever, even if we've made it through a long week and we give them a little sip of the cocktail, you know, it's a way of reminding ourselves that they are a part of our lives. They don't just go into the ground or have ashes spread at sea and then they're gone. And it's it's and it's so interesting that that is a very very common practice in so many different cultures and yet it is something that is very missing in yeah. our I say Western, I'm probably just thinking American more than anything. I can't speak necessarily to other Western cultures, Um, you know, because you see that, again, I'm familiar with the Japanese culture. They certainly do that. There's leaving, you know, uh, and it often is just like a piece of fruit, like an orange or something in front of the shrine. Um, in, In the Kemetic tradition, you know, I loved when you said that they are still so very much alive even when dead because part of the reason why we do uh, or or part of the philosophy or or reason behind doing our annual ritual every year which is built into the ritual itself Um, and and I will say we're reconstructionists so this is not something we have made up this is based off of translations from ancient Egypt and you are we give there's a whole, there's seven different offerings you give on a tray of different things. You know, there's a food offering that's in addition to that. Um, and what you're doing is you're refreshing their soul every yeah. year. And, you know, for it to come across as, you know, we're hungry, it immediately made me think of the practice we do, because in a sense, that's what we're doing as well. Um, and it's it, when you do the air quotes around, you know, feeding them for their physical selves, it is that idea of, we are giving them the essence of what that yes. holds. Yes. And, of course, there's always the debate because some traditions will say never to eat that food. 
whereas our tradition, uh, you know, we actually will then the offerings revert and then we eat them, you know, because they've taken what they need from them and then we eat with them. But in a way, that's actually creating kind of that communal aspect of sharing the meal or that kind of thing. And I think that it's why it's one of the reasons why in our culture in particular, American culture, there's such a distance and fear and kind of shove into the background so we don't have to think about it, talk about it, or hear about it around death because we've lost all of these practices that have anything to do with maintaining relationship or even awareness of because of that probably religion aspect where it says, well, they've gone on either to one place or the other and therefore, you know, why do it? But I'm always fascinated by how certain things carry over from many, many cultures that seemingly have no relationship to each other. And yet, if they're all doing the same things, more or less, and they've been doing it for so long, and there's been an awareness of spirits around people, et cetera, for so long, it, it, sure. it it's always just so odd to me how people can say, well, that probably is just superstition. Well, that probably isn't really real. And I'm like, well, if it wasn't, if there wasn't a realness to it, it would not have survived in many cultures over many, many eons and continue to be practiced in many ways. And we wouldn't hear such similar stories even now, even though they get poo-pooed. So I realize I've gone way off on a little tangent there. No, no, no. I was going to say, to add to that, that I think uh, that while the Age of Enlightenment has brought us um, many wonderful advances, including the technology we're speaking on right now, um, there has been a sort of systemic breakdown of uh, spiritual belief and uh, more of a refusal to acknowledge any any kind of spiritual wisdom uh, in the Western you know, um, scientific mind. Uh, the the fact that you know that and this may be. I don't want to blame the scientists for our our inability to deal with our dead. I mean, that's not fair. But I do think that there are so many people who believe that there's no way to prove the existence of God or the existence of an afterlife, therefore, there must not be one. And therefore, when we die, we just sort of blink out of existence, and that's that. And I do have to wonder if them coming across in your initial um, interaction, Mm -hmm. uh, if coming across saying we're so hungry, if that actually is not a carryover from the living state, because... For the people in our society who don't necessarily engage in these kind of practices, I think it creates a certain hunger for that connection, Mm -hmm. and then they carry that over, and so they continue to be hungry, whereas people who have been practicing this, I would be surprised if many of them would have the same kind of hunger or thirst or longing in, in the spirit realm. Um, because they would have been engaging in that kind of interactive communal aspect of things and getting a certain nourishment from it, just like I said, you know, where we take, we revert the offerings back. So Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm engaging and getting some of that that's directly connected to those spirits because they've also partaken of those offerings, 
Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily going to have the same kind of hunger or thirst because I've already been engaging it or satisfying it or fulfilling it in mm-hmm. in in the phys- in this realm. Yeah, you are nourished by it. And, uh, and, and 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 that and that makes me curious as to how you've seen doing this kind of practice since you started to today, how it has affected and how you have changed through the doing of it and being, um, you know, engaged with and, and, and in active communication with the, the spirit realm? Well, uh, I think it's it's shown itself in a lot of really good ways. Um, if, for example, I feel... Okay, so here's the story. Uh, when my mother's mother was alive, um, uh, she and my grandfather uh, were trying to have children, and this was back in the uh, 1930s in San Francisco. And uh, they, they had, after they got married, their first two children were boys. But both children, uh, one I think died in childbirth and one died very shortly thereafter. And then my uh my my mother's oldest sister came along and then my mother and then the youngest sister. But the two little boys died. And as a part of one of the um uh let's see, I I did a lot of in-depth work around this particular lineage of my mother's mother's side. Uh, because there seemed to be so much grief around mothering um, that sort of went beyond what they call the mother wound. Um, You know, and I I think everyone has to deal with the mother wound at some point, but this seemed to be a mother wound around motherhood. And dying in childbirth comes up a lot in my family, especially along this lineage. Well, so one um, during one session of trance work and journey work where I went back to visit this uh, particular lineage, my grandmother appeared. This was after she had died. And she was in so much grief that she was screaming in anger uh, that she didn't, you know, I couldn't do anything else until I dealt with and actually listen to what her process was, what she was going through. And it was the grief about her little boys, that no, that she was barely allowed to grieve for those children uh, before, you know, having to have more children. And, you know, just life goes on. You can't, I, I guess, you know, it, it just, there wasn't any system or structure in place for her at that time to truly grieve the death of those little boys. And so she needed to get that out of her system. And I was in a community at that time who heard me as I was able to vocalize her rage and her anger, and they helped uh, provide a context for her. So I was basically, I was sitting in a room and just screaming about being so angry that my boys were taken from me. And, of course, it wasn't me. It was my grandmother. Um, And all of the women in the community came and stood around me and just held me and held me as I processed her grief. 
And that was what needed to happen in that moment for that particular, well, not only for the individual, my grandmother, but also for the little boys and for that healing to happen or to begin around the the mother wound. And so for the next year or so, every time I checked in with this particular lineage, my mother's mother's side, I could see an image of my grandmother as a young woman in the 1940s. She was very pretty, and um, she was in a, a really beautiful long wool coat, and she had two little boys by the hand. And it was like they were over on that side getting to live the life. She was getting to raise them, which is what she needed to do and what she wanted to do in order to be able to move on. And I can't tell you exactly how that happened. I didn't make it happen. I mean, I I am nothing but a channel. I think we all are. But it needed to happen for her. And I was just open to it. And in a communal situation where they were, the women were able to help me process that grief and hold that grief for her so that she could have the grief of not being the mother she wanted to be and then let her move on. And I haven't seen her since. Now, that was maybe 2013. So I don't know if she's still with the little boys who have grown into men now on that side. Maybe they're uh, doing whatever they need to do. And I'm hoping that that healing has flowed in a way down toward me, my generation, and then the generations that have come after us. Um, Like I I mentioned that my cousins have children. Um, They have daughters. And so maybe when they start to have children, um, that type of wounding, of separation between mother and child, hopefully won't happen. Or if it does happen, you know, because you can never tell about these things, there will be an ancestor on hand who knows how to process it, who knows who can help. Does that make sense? It does. Um, And I'm wondering what you would say to people about how they can, one, um, connect with ancestors and that kind of thing, and two, how they may be able to assist or support them in some way, especially if they don't feel like they're in the same position or feel as if they can perform the same kind of role and service as you did in that regard. Um, You know, but uh, because they they may be afraid that, well, if I just go and put flowers on the grave, is that not going to be enough if my grandmother is in that kind of a situation versus will that be enough? Will that be helpful? And and maybe you can suggest some things that people can think about doing that allow for that connection as well as to give that kind of support that doesn't have to be becoming the channel and suddenly, you know, feeling as if the spirit is either speaking through them or, or entering them, you know, or something like that. Something wild and scary that they've (laughs) never experienced before. Absolutely. First of all, the leaving flowers on the grave, the pouring out of libations, um, that anybody can do. And that is, if that's what people are doing, that's enough. 
um, if people want, so I don't want anybody to feel uh, somehow um, insecure about their own types of ancestor reverence because anything you do will help anything. Um, I also have a, a list here of uh, references, resources for teachers and books uh, that people can use for further study. And I would be happy to share that with anybody who wants it. Um, but what I wanted to make sure that people know is that if they do decide to set aside time, like what I used to do, and um, I'm getting into the practice again now, uh, is every Friday evening um, spending about half an hour, I, I put on some kind of nice, very, very quiet, plinky, plunky music, and very new agey kind of music, and I just go into a meditative state and uh, kind of a trance state, and I start just visualizing whatever represents the center for me. And I would recommend anybody, they could do this if they want to. For some people, the center is like a bonfire. For some people, it could be a standing stone or a room, like a kitchen in the home. For me, it's a tree. It's a great big world tree. And <clears throat> each lineage is in one of the four directions. Each one of my four main lineages is in one of the directions. So if I'm looking north, I'm looking at my father's father's lineage. And then I turn to my right, and that's the west. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the east. And that's my mother's mother, her lineage. And then I take another turn to the right, and that's the south, and that's my mother's father. And then another turn, and that's the west, and that's my father's mother. So I have the grandmothers on an east-west axis, and the grandfathers on a north-south. And what I would recommend for anybody who wants to try this is to just start there. To not, to do, uh, let's see, to um, engage in, I would call it triage, just pardon the pun, if you're standing at a tree doing triage, you would look into the the north, for example, but not touch anything, not, um, not uh, engage with anybody. Imagine a plexiglass window in between you and them to protect yourself so that you don't become the, uh, the channel the medium, the unsuspecting vessel into which uh, maybe some negative energy can pour. You always have to have a protection up. So as you're looking into the north, for example, I beg your pardon, um, imagine that what you're seeing is on the other side of a glass at like a prison visiting center and you're there on one side of the glass and you're on the other so that there you are perfectly safe and you stay safe. And then what you can do in your little 30-minute um, uh, meditation while you're protected in each direction, just look and see. See how things look. 
are, is everybody partying? And if so, awesome. You know, maybe they're uh, having cocktails and clinking glasses and waving to you and everything's happy and fine. Maybe it's all black and it just kind of, there's nothing there. And that was how it was actually with my father's father. It was not for, it took months of just showing up and being there for me to start to see something in my father's father's lineage. And that's still a lineage I'm working with very uh, assiduously because there's so much damage there. Um, And anyway, um, so that's kind of what I would recommend for getting started. Um, Not doing anything too extreme. Um, Looking for a teacher if you want one or reading a book about this. There are some excellent books about ancestor reverence and how to do it in in many different ways. There are many different traditions, many different ways. Um, And just exploring it and keeping an open mind. And I think that it's also just as valid for some people, even if that feels scary, uncomfortable, foreign, whatever, just going and finding a medium that yes. you can see or work with on a regular basis to allow them to be the go-between for you rather than you feeling as if you need to have to do it yourself. Yes, that's a wonderful idea. Yes. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is in uh, working with each lineage, if you decide to do that, um, don't feel that you have to work with any of the dead that were toxic in this life. As a matter of fact, it's probably best to not deal with anybody of like maybe the last three or four generations, but to go over their heads and to go back to, if you can find one, go back to find an ancestor along the line who lived in a time when they did ancestor reverence of some kind. They, they honored their dead, and they are able to help, you know, so that you're not, because you don't, the, the job of the human being here, the living human being, is not to heal the ancestors or the beloved dead. The job of the, the living individual here, according to how I practice it, is just to hold space, to be like the the object in the manifested world against which the healed and whole and bright ancestors can bounce the sonar signal of healing off of and that signal that energy will heal the lineage so you're letting the the people you're letting the ancestors do the work the heavy lifting because they're in a place where they can do it. We are not here. We're in a place of manifestation in which we hold space. Um, I, I would be curious on your thought about this, though. Mm-hmm. Even though we may not be working directly with ancestors who maybe were toxic in some way or where there is um, you know, trauma right. that is associated with that ancestor or something uh, that might directly relate to us, mm-hmm. I feel that it's also, it's still important 
to acknowledge them in some way. So it would be about like having some place, even if it's just going to a grave or, but for me, I'm always about having altars and things. So it would, it would have something that would be a space set aside for that person or for those people, whoever they are, and still leaving an offering on a regular basis and saying something like, may your spirit be appeased and may your soul be refreshed. And then leaving it at that. I'm not going to stand there and work with them. I'm not going to open for them to be coming in and, you know, perhaps bringing that toxicity in that creates all sorts of challenges. Um, But at least doing something Mm -hmm. that sends to, because it's sending away from me, but it's sending to them something without opening the door for anything to necessarily be reciprocal or to come back. Yes, I think that's a wonderful idea. And I also think that any kind of uh, activity along those lines will help. Um, Like, for example, just thinking their name, remembering them, you know, uh, just being aware of that that person. You don't have to think kindly of them, but I do think that carrying an awareness of them. Some people have such toxic relationships that they can't help but have an awareness of that toxic person. Um, and so I don't want to push anybody into doing anything where they're feeling unsafe. Um, but I do think that at least uh, acknowledging or naming them um and somehow claiming them will help. Do you know what I mean? I, I think yes. And I think that what I have found is that at least doing that, even if it's to someone that, let's say, perpetrated trauma upon us, um, mm-hmm. at least doing that one little thing has helped. I've seen it help people move more towards a space of forgiveness rather than to just hold on to the anger because they just hold that that vision of who the person was when they were living and what they did. Right. Because when you, when you offer appeasement and refreshment, I, I know I keep using those words because that's very much from my tradition. Um, when you offer appeasement and refreshment, it, it's, it just, it shifts you. And yeah. And I think that something that can help us move to a place of forgiveness so we don't continue to be consumed by nor defined by what that ancestor may have been or done or represents is going to be helpful for us on this plane, regardless of what it may be doing for them. Although I do think there will be a benefit for them as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. And I do think that if a person is in that place where they can feel strong enough to move toward forgiveness, they absolutely should do so. Because um, I, I believe that when someone dies, they continue to grow and change and evolve as if they were still alive. Uh, so who they are, for example, now may not be at all who they were when they died. You know, and so... It's not 
in in a lot of ways, it's not about the dead. It's about the living. In these cases, it's about helping the living to move past the trauma, to heal from it, if if uh, if they're able to. Um, and we've talked a lot about um, ancestors as it relates to family, blood relatives, etc. Um, could you also speak a bit about other types of ancestors? On the one hand, we have spiritual ancestors, um, and we don't always go work with ancestors just for healing or that kind of thing. We can also go to ancestors for guidance, you know, for support, etc. Um, so I wonder if you could just also talk a bit about what, like, spiritual ancestors are and working with them, as well as if someone is adopted and don't necessarily know their blood ancestry, what that might mean and how they might be able to still engage in this kind of work, even mm -hmm. though they may not be specifically connecting with a blood relative that they knew, although they may be surprised as to who comes around. Right. Um, but <laughs> but some people may think, well, you talk about you know turning in this direction for your mother's father and this direction for your your father's father and all of that but it's like well if i'm adopted i could do that for the people that adopted me but that's different than say a blood relative that's true well let me just start with that actually um because my father was adopted and so we only have the names of his parents and that's it uh we don't know anything about them uh, except that they were Irish. So I think in many ways that's why when I turned to the north and was looking into my father's father's lineage, there was just darkness. There's just There was nothing. And I think um, that it was because there, or at least in part, because I had nowhere to start except that darkness. Now, um, <clears throat> if people are adopted, well, see, the thing is, um, if you're adopted, you still have a mother's mother, mother's father, father's father, father's mother, and you just don't have any information about them, or you have perhaps a little bit of information. And so there's um, what's called unverified perf or unverifiable personal gnosis and that kind of has to be at least to get started what you go on um, and you have to use some um, sort of uh, common sense when information starts to come up like for example if I was looking into the darkness and I began to see a mountain and it was very rocky and very misty and then all of a sudden kind of had the idea that it was Scotland and I was thinking well Scotland why we're from Ireland and so it wasn't until later uh, in later journeying that I found out through um, other visits that we do have a lot of Scottish ancestry in us but again all of this at this moment is unverified personal gnosis um, and that I think is, I think that's fine. Going from that is fine. Um, as long as you keep a record of what you find 
and see if you can begin to put a story together based on it. Uh, I've also learned from some traditions that being adopted brings you into the lineages that have adopted you. Um, in other words, um, being adopted in as far as ancestor work goes uh, <clears throat> makes no difference that your adopted mother is still your mother and is still your birth mother and therefore all of her ancestors are your ancestors even if you're not related by blood um so it just depends on how you want to go how you want to approach it you can do it either way if you have a powerful relationship with your adopted family and <clears throat> you want to explore that go ahead and start there uh, because you'll most likely have access to a greater amount of information there and once you get very comfortable in the practice and you start to learn uh, about your lineages and you are more comfortable going on or doing this journey work and you set up um, kind of a routine of feeding your ancestors or going out to the cemetery or just talking to your grandmother over a cup of tea once a week. Once you kind of get into a groove then and, and are more comfortable, then you can maybe start to explore the corners where there isn't a light. Uh, the the birth corners of the lineages and add them in so that it isn't a an either or proposition it's a first one and then the other um, I've also found that it can be helpful for people in a situation like that like even if they're adopted they may know that they're Irish or right. Italian, you know, yes. or something like that. And, uh, of course, if they already have a spiritual tradition or they have something that is resonating and calling to them, they can certainly work within that tradition sure. and the way they do things. But if not, or even if so, if they're willing to just explore a bit, what they might do is look up how did the Irish do ancestor reverence and let me engage in some of those practices and ways because it will connect you to that that deeper connection to where you come from, even though you don't know who exactly you came from. Right. And, it, you know, I, I, I've seen where that suddenly opens something up or resonates something for someone because it taps into something that's very deeply encoded in them because that goes way back to, you know, where they originate from in some way. Um, and that can really be a good starting place for people if they don't know where or how to start go to the traditions from the culture that you have, you know, connection to from the past, if nothing else, because you may find it easier, you may find it familiar right. all of a sudden, sure. um, or you may find that things begin to open up or happen for you a little easier than if you're doing it in something completely different from that, that either you're not familiar with or maybe doesn't doesn't seem to have any real connection or bearing familiarity to the way it was done in that culture. Right. Absolutely true. I think that's a wonderful idea. If people do have that inkling or awareness to have somewhere to start 
and begin to explore that. And we have, uh, in our era of modern technology, we have access to information on a global scale for the first time in our human history. So taking advantage of that is a wonderful idea. Absolutely. So if we wanted to give people a little, you know, practical homework they can start doing for themselves. We've talked a lot about like altars and setting up spaces and practices. What are some of the things you might suggest, um, even in a general sense that you maybe have found that many cultures or many practices seem to include on their altars or ways that they go about doing things? What might you suggest for someone as to how to think about if they were so inclined setting up a space or an altar of some sort where they could remember their ancestors, start to work with the dead, um, but to, to create a space and what might be on that space that in particular helps with that practice and process? Absolutely. Uh, well, setting up the altar is one of the more fun things about this because it can be anything. Um, <clears throat> it can be a photo wall. It can be a bookcase. My ancestor altar is actually the top shelf of a bookcase. Um, it can contain anything as long as that that thing, whatever it contains, means something to you and your people. Um, I have both, at, we, you mentioned earlier, and I didn't address it, uh, ancestors of spirit or spiritual ancestors. Um, I have an ancestor of affinity um, that I consider, or I consider Shakespeare to be an ancestor of affinity uh, because I also love to write. I love his poetry. I love drama. So I have an, a Shakespeare action figure on my ancestor altar. Um, there are, if you are a scientist or a woman who's a scientist, having photos of your heroes or your heroines up on your ancestor altar can be very inspiring. Um, having statues of any saints that you are particularly connected to. For example, if you have a background in Catholicism, if you received your confirmation, who is your confirmation saint? Or if that isn't your path, um, are there any saints or um, <clears throat> dakinis, goddesses, or gods that you feel drawn to that is more or less ancestral, like a family kind of a, a household god kind of a thing? You can put them on the altar as well. Um, I actually was very fortunate in that I had a friendship with a woman who did, uh, when I was working at this company in Santa Clara, I was friends with a woman who uh, went to Ireland maybe three times a year. And each time she went, I asked her to bring me back a rock, just a, a pebble, uh, something from the side of the road. It didn't even matter, just a rock from Ireland. And she brought me back those uh, beautiful uh, rocks, one from the Giant's Causeway, one from, I think, Belfast, although I'm not sure, uh, one from Dublin, just different stones that I've set up. And another friend who brought me back some earth from an ancient uh, 
burial mound in, I think it's Southern Ireland. I forget the name of it. And another friend brought me a tiny little vial of water from the the Boyne, the, the river Boyne. And so all of those are on my ancestor altar as well. Um, <clears throat> anything like that you can set up. I'm a big believer in rocks as carrying the energy of place. So um, if you have stones from your grandma's house, you can put those on your ancestor altar. They're infused with the family energy. If you have access to any of the graves of your ancestors, you can bring back a little grave dirt. And that is also very powerful in uh, many of the traditions here in the Americas. The hoodoo and root work um, use grave dirt for a lot of magical purposes, and it's very protective. Um, you can also bring in anything, any element of wood. For example, a redwood tree is very powerfully associated with grandfather energy. And so I have a piece of redwood wrapped in a black cloth representing my mother's father's people. Uh, just as, as like the entire lineage, this one like uh, piece of a branch uh, wrapped in black represents this, my mother's father's lineage. Uh, I have a little witch made out of felted cotton and she represents my father's mother's lineage. And I think sometimes having some kind of little element, uh, whether it's a stone or a branch or a doll representing a lineage can help solidify your practice, can help give focus to your practice and bring those energies more sharply into your life if that's what you want. Um, and I would also suggest, because we talked a lot about offerings, mm -hmm. um, that you know some people hear that and they either get um, freaked out or confused or, uh, you know, they think it's going to be somehow expensive or it has to be elaborate, you know, and it's it's remembering offerings can be very simple. I know one very traditional thing that you find in a lot of cultures um, right. is uh, bread and water. Right. Um, and, you flowers know, is another one bringing flowers. Them. Yeah. Um, but also it could just be something that was a favorite if you if it's somebody that you knew, uh, you know, a favorite of that person. Like if they liked, a, you know, Reese's peanut butter cups or something, yeah, offering like a little to love those little um, Werther's candies, the, the little ones that were wrapped in uh, yellow plastic, mm -hmm. you know, and an entire sack of them was like two dollars or something at um, she would get them at Shaw's candies. And I don't know if Shaw's is around anymore. But you can just go into Long's and get a little bag for a couple dollars and every once in a while give grandma, unwrap it for her and put it on a little dish, maybe with a, a glass of water or uh, maybe once in a while if you want to. I know uh, I have a friend who actually does have a cup of tea with her mother who has died. And I think that's a lovely idea. Yeah, and I think doing it according to you know what you can afford like even if you get the whole bag of the candy, you don't have to give the whole bag. <laughs> you know that that one bag allows you to have offerings. You know, if there's 50 pieces of candy in there, you could have an offering every week. That right. that you know that bag is going to offer. So it doesn't have to be something elaborate or expensive. And you know, it's not. 
I mean, there, you could get into whole things about if mm-hmm. you're going to request something, then you offer more or, you know, that kind of thing. But um, in general, it's not about quantity or expense or elaborateness versus it's the act of the doing. It is. Uh, that's right. It's in, in my experience, it's about showing up. And if that means just showing up with a glass of water or a little cup of water, uh, or I uh, use shot glasses because the bookcase shelf is small. So uh, I have shot glasses for everybody, and most of the time it's those are filled with water. And I, and I think I would also just jump in and say, if you knew that it was like, if it was your mother and your grandmother and your great-grandmother and this grandmother and that grandmother, all the way back, you know, on the mother's side, you don't have to have a shot glass for every single one of them right. on that bookcase. You can do one glass, right. and that will suffice for that's all of them okay. not to worry. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> get a little unwieldy. Yeah, because you just get so busy. I do know someone who, uh, she's a wonderful teacher. Uh, she works in the Norse tradition, uh, Northern shamanic tradition, I should say. And she's in New York, and she's on my list here. Um, she's written a book about ancestor reverence, and um, and she has in the past done classes. I don't know if she still does. But anyway, um, she kind of jokes on her blog about the ancestors having more room in her house than she and her husband have because there are altars for them everywhere, specifically because... There are shot glasses for everybody and teacups for everybody, but we all don't have an entire house that we can turn into a temple. You know, it you got to work with what you've got. You have to be able to set aside a space, even if it's just a little space, that's enough. That's absolutely enough. You don't have to be the priestess who turns over her whole house. Well, and they don't need a lot of physical space. I mean, you know, a hundred of them can show up, but they'll fit in that one little bookshelf, right. you know, because they're in a very different state yeah. than what the physical might, yeah. you know, entail. Yeah, um, absolutely. So do you want to, well, first of all, why don't you make sure that you say how people could contact you if they had further questions or wanted to ask more about the references that I'm going to also have you um, give here. Okay. Um, well, they can email me at musesdarling at icloud.com. And I'll spell that. It's M-U-S-E-S-D-A-R-L-I-N-G. So all one word, musesdarling, at icloud.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, just Karen Krebser. Um, and I will, if anybody uh, wants they can email me at that email address, and I will send them the PDF, a PDF of the resource list. So something I, I had not forewarned you about, but that's because we like the spontaneity. And obviously, since you like drama, you like improv. Surprises! <laughs> True. <laughs> um, what I like to do at the end of each conversation is I have a question to ask you from a previous guest. They didn't know who would get the question. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you for a question to pose to a future guest. All right. Okay. So the question I'm going to ask you comes from my guest a couple of months ago uh, named Alida Lito, who is a feng shui master. And her question is, if you are you, 
You are unique. What is unique about you? Oh, let's see. What is unique about me? Wow. Um, I think the way I am made up, my ingredient list, my list of ingredients is unique. Um, I, I think the combination I have of <clears throat> studiousness and seriousness uh, blended or sifted through, uh, leavened with a very powerful sense of humor, um, but also um, an intense curiosity about all kinds of things. Um, my mind is constantly reaching, constantly reaching out, constantly asking why and how or how come actually, in some cases. Um, in the case of politics, it tends to be how come an awful lot. But I think those qualities make me different. You know? Yes. And I think that this was the perfect question for what we have been talking about as well, because ultimately that's kind of what gives each of us our unique spiritual energetic signature. Mm -hmm. So that's what we then carry on with us and how we continue to kind of stay differentiated in the spirit realm, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, you know, why we can still connect with so-and-so who has died because those unique qualities become those unique energetic signatures which help us to continue to identify and connect to that right. unique individual or spirit in that way. Yeah. Um, so what, what question would you like to pose for a future guest? Well, it's so interesting that you ask this because as I was uh, riding the commuter train home tonight, I was thinking about this question. I was posing this question to myself. And I think I will pose it now to a future guest of yours. And that is that I have heard that the reality, the dimension we live in is only one of many. And that there are as many potentialities out there as there are choices we've made and uh, different actions we've taken. If this is true, that means there are any of a number of versions of you out in the world, out in the universe, I should say. If you met one of those versions, how would that version be different? How would you be different from you? Right. There was a solemn pause there for people to like absorb that question. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my God, did I lose him? No, no. Well, you lost me to thought with that kind of a question, which hopefully other people had undoubtedly spurred them into, well, where would I, where would I go with responding to that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I 
uh, no, it was really interesting that I kind of got lost there when I was riding the BART home. I was like going, whoa, wait a minute. What, are, what would I, would I even like me? You know? <laughs> yeah. Would I be an asshole in another life? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. No. Um, so uh, let's just remind people once again, they can contact you at Muses Darling, M-U-S-E-S-D-A-R-L-I-N-G, at iCloud.com. Yes. Or they can find you on Facebook and send you a message through there, and it's just do a search for Karen Krebser, K-R-E-B-S-E-R. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose if there's more than one, it would be the one that shows up as being from Belmont, California. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> um, and people are welcome to contact you if they have further questions about ancestor reverence and that kind of thing, or to get a copy of the reference and resource list that you have available. Um, I will also let people know that Karen offers a monthly ancestor reverence salon at a store in Oakland, California called the Sacred Well. Mm -hmm. And that is on the third Wednesdays of each month. If you're in the area, it's open to anyone and you could We'd be happy to have you drop in for that. Um, if you are not in the area, we do broadcast it live on Periscope, so you're welcome to join in at that time as well to both listen and you can interact through there. You can ask questions, et cetera, through Periscope uh, during the live broadcast. And previous salons are also available for you to watch on the Sacred Well YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the Sacred Well. The channel is right there. There's a whole playlist. Um, And you can watch any of those uh, videos as well after the salons have happened. So there are many ways to continue to enhance your knowledge of Ancestor Reverence, to also tune in and continue to get more from Karen on a regular basis uh, each month. Um, And... I think that she would happily invite you to get in touch with her if you had more questions, wanted more information, or even had stories to share Sure, in some way, Um, which you're also welcome to do if you would like on our uh, Solvox page on Facebook or on the Revolution with High C Facebook page as well if you'd like to share some of those stories or experiences or suggestions and things, we would certainly welcome you to do that. Excellent, yes. So thank you, a thousand gratitudes to you, Karen Krebser, for taking time to join us here this uh, this fine day. Thank you and so much for having me, see It's been wonderful. And uh, I, I, I would encourage you not to underestimate your willingness to call yourself an expert or at <laughs> least a, a priestess. Oh, of Ancestor yeah. Reverence. Okay, all right, you've convinced me. All right, good. <laughs> um, so, thank you very much You're welcome. for being You're here. Welcome. And stay tuned for the rest of the show. We will be right back with Revolution with Heisty right after this break.
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Greetings, Space Cadets, and welcome to Flying Punk Rock Unicorn's June podcast. This month's theme is going to be Binary Stars. It's an appropriate theme, given that the month belongs to the season of Gemini, the season of the Twins. Binary stars are a type of star system in which two stellar objects are entrained in their gravitational orbits that are orbiting one another, and from our vantage point on Earth, the star appears to blink or have variable light, when in fact it is simply one star passing in front of the other that makes it appear to blink. It's an appropriate metaphor for the Gemini energy signature as it reflects a kind of twinning. May was an intense month which featured six planets in apparent retrograde motion. June follows a similar trend as five planets will remain in apparent retrograde some well into next year. The Gemini ruler Mercury found itself in apparent retrograde motion for the better part of of last month and perhaps had many of us scrambling and dealing with the breakdowns in communication and technology that are said to symbolically correlate to such motion. With the remaining planets of Mars, Saturn, Pluto, Uranus, and Neptune all in retrograde motion, it is likely we may all feel a subjective pull inwards as it seems that the human drama becomes an inner struggle towards enlightenment with many instinctual pitfalls along the way. June will have some tense aspects, including a series of Venus and Mercury squares to Neptune, which can predispose circumstances to reflect illusory underpinnings or provide an amplification of spiritual elements depending on which side of the Neptunian slope we tend to fall on. It is a slippery slope. Let's begin with the signs. Aries, you are autonomous agent. Aries is the distinct symbol of personal liberty and individual rights. It exists to sound the alarm at a backsliding into authoritarianism and create the groundswell that will turn the tide of a society slowly eating itself alive and passing over more rights and freedoms to oligarchic corporate interests at the expense of the people on the ground. Aries is asking themselves the question in this season of Gemini related to autonomy, liberty, and power in the true sense, which has to do with the ability to act the liberties we can take, and the fight for sovereignty in a world where the individual is being mechanized into machines sorely in need of disruption. It's not an easy task Aries has, but speaking truth to power is the only way anything has ever changed. With five planets in retrograde, including the ruler of Aries, Mars, which which is retrograding through Libra, Aries polarity, The dimension is no longer solely the rights of the individual, but of groups of people. It can feel like the entire human struggle is internalized, and to an extent it is, as it is individuals who must do the legwork of creating a brave new world. Which brings us to Taurus, and you will be experiencing iconoclastic finance. 
Taurus is the symbol of finance and more profoundly valuations of every persuasion. In a word, economics. In the season of Gemini, Taurus is taken with inventing the philosophy that will give rise to a new set of economics that are reflective of the reality of life on earth instead of the current pathological delusion of an economy we have now that is systematically enslaving people all over the world. For all of the world's problems, a new economics is truly the one overriding solution as it would shift culture in a direction of sustainability. By this point, materialism as a philosophy will most likely give way to a worldview in which social contribution is valued more over consumption. It is capitalism that creates a psychology of false desire fueling consumption. On a more personal level, Taurus is grappling with questions of what value they place on various life functions. Are material comforts truly where value lies, or is there a more profound dimension that value is found? Free time, social contribution, or meaningful work. Which brings us to the star of the month, Gemini. And they are holding the symbol of the encryption key. A new debate has been raging between federal authorities and certain technology companies, namely Apple Computer, over the salient issues of data encryption. This example is utilized as Gemini is the first of the air triplicity and therefore intimately related to communications technologies. Our age is one in which technology will continue its, its acceleration and the upheavals it will cause to the social construct will have to be contended with. As technology advances, it will be essential to grapple with the tensions between privacy and transparency and the related consequences of both. It speaks also to the age-old debate between liberty and security. Gemini has given the distinction of this issue as it uniquely is at home with ambivalence and the seeming duality of tense subjects. On a more personal level, Gemini is grappling with issues surrounding its private life and its public face. And with Mercury only recently stationing direct, it has been a wrenching internal process which is now slated to become a more public process, ultimately working towards a resolution. Some tense aspects throughout the month will create some conflict, especially the Venus square Neptune of June 3rd, as this creates illusory constraints in the social realm. Cancer, and this month you're going to be the social justice warrior. Cancer is the holder of all the genetic and social lineages and legacies that are the elements of the human race. It holds ancestral memory, including the traumas and triumphs of history. Given that the sign is a repository of social memory and in its darker shadow aspects can also be prone to ethnocentrism, which is the root of racism and prejudice. Along these lines, cancer is probing the foundations of these social constructs that continue to create these patterns of dissonance. On a personal level, cancer is deeply probing their own internalized prejudices and rooting out the darker elements to have a more complete picture to unite the human family and extend the moral sphere of concern to include the broadest possible set of humanity. Leo's, you are annihilating authoritarianism. Leo is the purview of kings, queens, and others in positions of privilege and leadership. On the darker side, it is also a repository of the shadow of authority. Autocrats, dictators, demagogues, and authoritarians Effectively, Leo is reminding us that we live in an age when strongman leadership will sink a collective, not lead it to apotheosis. 
On a personal level, Leo is asking where it may need to defer and let go of the need to be in charge. And this is never an easy task for Leo to accomplish. At the same time, it is starting a revolution in what it is to empower others, which is true power. Leading the banner that will bring about an end to the disenfranchisement that, con that can creates the conditions for demagoguery to arise in the first place. Largely, the rise of authoritarian regimes are sparked by populist discontent with a political machine that no longer contends with the concerns of those on the ground. Those who bear the brunt of policy implications and decisions made at all levels of official leadership. Then we have an economic system based on oligarchy and have consistently chipped away at civil liberties through policies designed to serve a minority of our population is the crisis of confidence in leadership that is the genesis of this issue. Leo is sounding the alarm that the state of affairs cannot continue. Which brings us to Virgo. And this month, the sphere of concern will be public servants. Virgo is the symbol of the public, the commons, and the pedestrian person, the people on the ground, or to borrow a phrase from Marx, the proletariat or working class. These are the folks like you and me who toil and do the grunt work that keeps human economies functional and largely we are being collectively screwed over by a leadership that is so out of touch with our concerns that they refuse to do their jobs. Given that this falls under the purview of Virgo, it is these folks the most common sign of the zodiac. Remember, they get 45 degrees of the zodiacal wheel and hence there are more of them that are the harbingers of a new dialectic that reminds public servants of their obligations to the commons and the might of the public and the mundane individual. On a personal level, Virgo is grappling with the realities created by this vast imbalance in power. They are devising a new system that will restack the, the deck in the favor of the commons. Libra, you'll be instigating equality. Libra is the symbol of justice and fairness in all of its permutations. In particular, it represents the need for social justice and the preservation of a social contract that allows disparate individuals with differing motivations to live in collective harmony. Increasingly, there is a widespread recognition that elements of the social contract have been broken. Libra cannot allow this trend to continue as it is so corrosive to the principles the sign stands for. Increasingly, there is a need to address the salient imbalances and reestablish terms of the social contract that make life in a common pleasant, and not the as essentially bleak exercise it has become. On a personal note, Libra is personally grappling with the implications of a broken social contract, namely how, is it, how it is affecting their lives. Granted, we are all doing this, but Libra feels it more acutely, as it falls under their sign's purview. It is not hopeless but it does require weighing options and potentially making sacrifices for a greater good. It will also require pulling on the pioneering energies of your polarity, Aries, and to burn it all to the ground. Surrender your white flag. The time for social graces has passed, and now those responsible need to be held accountable for a state of affairs that has limited the choices people have all around the world. Which naturally brings us to Scorpio. Your theme this month will be decarbonizing economics. Scorpio, the astrological reserve of immense power, microscopic elements, and powerful consequences. Atomic energy, petroleum, viruses, photovoltaic cells, and DNA. Sex, death, and taxes. 
Promising signs of a sea change in industry and economics ultimately don't go far enough as we must begin to divest ourselves and wean off of fossil fuels entirely. The most effective way to decarbonize, at least according to James Hansen, the former NASA scientist who brought this issue to the world's attention, has stated that a carbon tax is the only way to do it effectively. It creates a market signal which disincentivizes the production of fossil fuels and encourages the development of renewable sources. This falls under the Scorpio purview in that it is a tax and a small shift in policy that will have massive impact, essentially averting a possible apocalyptic scenario which could spell the end of civilization. On a personal level, Scorpios are dealing with the implications that such a project has for their lives and what their personal role in the Great Transformation is. No other sign is quite as equipped to responsibly manage the immense power that such, an, such a transition entails. Sagittarius, and you will express the necessity of multiculturalism. The world of late has shown a disturbing reminder that we have yet a long way to go in the process of becoming a truly global species. This works at odds with what needs to happen, which is these prejudices need to be consolidated to history and the world needs to integrate into a diverse multicultural organism, where national borders are increasingly irrelevant and humanity works together in unilateral cooperation. Sagittarius, this is your clarion call as your sign holds the energy of foreign cultures and long distances. And with Pluto tearing through your sign, it is a unique opportunity to transform the nature of globalization to better reflect and serve the interests of the commons of humanity and not the financial elites, elites currently in control. On a personal level, the archer may feel like it is internalizing the entire struggle of humanity. With Pluto in apparent retrograde, this experience is amplified in the psyche. I encourage Sagittarius to sit with the inner Congress. The denizens of your sign are up to big work, and when it goes direct again, you may have had a chance to resolve the struggle and are better, better positioned to help others. We now come to Capricorn, and your theme is neoliberalism must die. <laughs> Capricorn is the repository of social institutions, those integrated systems that allow a culture to persevere and continue across the generations. We've entered an age in which all of ours are failing us, and it is becoming increasingly apparent that the reason why is because few of them were designed for the majority of us. Not to mention the technologies creating social upheaval and opportunities for cultural change that are unprecedented. The one philosophy that arose within the last four decades is neoliberalism, a decidedly destructive philosophy which has given us late capitalism and its unstoppable consumption, consumption trickle-down economics, which has created a drought of wages and driven down social mobility, and has also led to endless wars couched in the idea of humane intervention. Instead of a thinly disguised imperialism, Capricorns, as holders of these systems, are tasked with the creation of new institutions built of the decaying corpses of the fallen ones. It's a tall order to be sure, but Capricorn is uniquely equipped with the capacity to build these new systems, one which acts, ones which act to cohere society together and unite the disenfranchised. On a personal level, Capricorn is grappling with the seeming collapse of once reliable cultural systems and is playing an active role in reconfiguring them on a more integral basis. 
and to honestly serve the commons and not a small minority of humans. And not a moment too soon in a world in which our species is rapidly planetizing and facing numerous existential threats, we are rise, wise to rise to the occasion and begin figuring out new social realities. Which brings us to Aquarius. You have the theme of humanizing technology. Like all things, technology is a double-edged sword and sometimes a blunt instrument. It is only as good as the intentions inbuilt into it by its designers. The problem at present is the interests expressing the most enthusiasm in its development. The trickery here is that darker intentions could be programmed into these technologies. I mention all this as Aquarius is the symbol holder of technology and the future, including its liberatory potentials and its pitfalls. Aquarius then is ensuring that technology is used appropriately and in ways that match the other Aquarian impulse, humanitarian concern. In a word, technology should ideally serve the commons and be designed with the best features of humanity in its root programming. Further, our technology needs to work seamlessly with nature and have no negative impact on the Earth's life support systems, as nature is the ground of being. On a personal level, Aquariuses are grappling with the visionary implications of this paradigm shift in how technology in how technology is applied to benefit the masses and the community of life. With Neptune in apparent retrograde, the vision of the techno wonderland must contend with reality and conflicting interests, not to mention the slow place of development. This includes avoiding the illusion that technology can solve all of our problems. It truly can't, but it can make them easier to grapple with. Which brings us finally to Pisces, the last sign of the zodiac, and their theme is global humanity. We'll start with a quote by Albert Einstein, which states, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Uranus has been in apparent retrograde motion through Pisces, which is challenging our deepest held convictions. In a word, the ideologies which have taken on religious meaning are increasingly under scrutiny and are not meeting the terms of new conditions. Call it a crisis in consciousness, something Pisces understands acutely as it presides over our deepest cosmic vision. It is interesting that as we transition into the age of Aquarius, we are still confronted by salient Piscean mysteries, and further that the tools of science, including the perceptual filter known as reductionism, which is a tendency to break complexes down to their constituent parts, that through this per process is fermenting a profound paradigm shift. It seems the more we attempt to reduce something to its part, we cannot reduce to a core, but instead we see increasing levels of relationship and interconnection. This is in stark contrast to the prevailing scientific cosmic paradigm, which states that phenomena are discrete and atomized. Pisces understands this concept like no other, and it is here that they are seeking to unite a fragmented world into an understanding that oneness is the root of reality. On a more personal note, Pisces is internally working through this drama of birthing a new paradigm into existence. This is difficult work because it means confronting sacred cows and taken for granted reality paradigms. That said, it is pertinent now more so than ever before that we have the imaginative capacity to manifest a new perception of the universe 
as the threats we are facing require a new consciousness to address. May June bring you all your desires, even in the challenge of great emergencies. If you'd like to learn more, please uh, visit my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. I'm also available on Facebook at Prometheus Jones, the astrologer. And I also contribute to another website that deals with the 13 sign system known as the Sidereolist. The links can all be found on my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. I will see you all next month. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. My thanks to Prometheus for another update and outlook from the stars. And my thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Revolution with Heisey. My name is Heisey, and you can find out more about me and my work at tarotbyheisey.net and more about the show at facebook.com slash revolutionwithhighc. Tune in again next month on the Soulvox Network on the second Sunday of the month to join the revolution. Until then. Please join us next time for Amethyst Oracle with Heisey Ludmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. This is Deb Carousella. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>